Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Good afternoon and a warm welcome, everyone, to the Bill Arnold Show here for the 4th of September. Bill is away. I think you've known that if you've been listening the last couple of days. I am Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill. It's been uh, fun to see him on vacation, take some extended time away through the Labor Day weekend here coming up. And I hope uh, you, too, are looking forward to a restful and uh, reorienting Labor Day weekend as we get into the sort of the unofficial start of the fall season coming up after that. And looking forward to the show ahead here, especially the first hour we've got regular contributor Alex McFarlane joining us on the show. He's a religion and culture expert, and if you listen regularly to Bill, you know he's on here every other week or so. And let's, without any further ado, bring Alex right in. Good afternoon, Alex. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited for our conversation here. I know that uh, you uh, work quite a bit in different media outlets, have your own radio show, and you also author a number of different books. Your most recent one here is titled, pretty provocatively, The Assault on America. And uh, you have some pretty good news in terms of where this is falling in the bestseller category. Well, thank you for bringing up the book. And uh, I, listen, I really appreciate everybody listening. It's it's the highlight of my months, you know, every other week to be on the Faith Radio Show with Bill Arnold and now yourself. But wrote this book. Uh, it's funny. The fastest book that I ever wrote, a publisher approached me June 10th. By June 15th, we had kind of a vision for this. And I wrote this book and turned it in August 17. And we did an audio book, a Kindle It's been just really blindingly fast, but it's called The Assault on America, How to Defend Our Country Before It's Too Late. And I talk about a lot of things about the battle of worldviews that we find ourselves in. It's really a, a spiritual battle over the future of the country. But I just found out late, late, late yesterday that on Amazon.com, uh, this is the number one best-selling book in the category of worldview and apologetics. So I, I give God the glory for that. Um, and let me just say, spirit of full disclosure here, um, I did not get any money for writing this book. You know, when you write a book for a publisher, generally they'll give you an advance, you know, and when you sign the contract, you get 50%. When you write the book, they give you the rest. I waived all, all compensation because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking about uh, the Constitution. I'm talking about defending our freedoms. And I've done a lot of secular media. I'll be doing um, with uh, New York Institute of Technology. I'll be um, speaking to their school of journalism at the end of the month. And, you know, there are people on different sides of the political spectrum. And already some have said, oh, you know, you're another evangelical right winger, you know, lining your pockets by talking about culture. No, I wrote this book with zero compensation purposely. And you can call Harrison House Publishers in Shippensburg, PA. Um, I said, look, what what you might have paid me, just put it into the marketing. And the reason I did that, I wrote a book um, with zero compensation. In fact, last week, spent a thousand dollars of my own money flying to three states to promote the book uh, because I, I honestly, truly believe the very future of the country and our freedoms hang in the balance. 
And I, I am thrilled that it's a number one bestseller in its category right now because we're fighting for the future of our liberties. Yeah, I think you're not alone, Alex, in some of the thoughts that you've had about the future of our country. Clearly, this has tapped a nerve, and especially with how quickly it's climbed into that bestseller category. As you've been traveling about and sharing some of the premise of the book and talking with people about it, what has been some of the feedback and what are some of the questions that people are asking? What are they saying about where we are in this very charged environment of our country? Well, yesterday I was talking uh, with a, a lady, and she was a Jewish lady uh, from New York City, a lifelong Democrat. And she said that, you know, my family has always voted Democrat, and she's not a Christian, uh, very fine Jewish lady. But she said, um, she said, I'm getting worried. All this talk of abolishing the police department, you know, no law enforcement. Uh, the mayor of D.C. yesterday said that they want to remove 138 monuments. And we're talking Benjamin Franklin, we're talking Thomas Jefferson, Francis Scott Key, even the Washington Monument. And the mayor of D.C., you might have seen it in the news, you know, well, if we can't move it, at least we can contextualize it, meaning let's explain to future generations how bad and how evil these European founders were. And so for one thing, a couple of people have pointed out that well, you know, all of these monuments that document our history and talk about our Constitution, they're not really the property of the city of D.C., so it's not within the mayor's prerogative to just, you know, with a stroke of a pen, call for their, you know, being torn down. These are America's history and America's monuments. But like the lady, the Jewish lady who told me, said, look, we're voting for Donald Trump. Um, I think even people that have not necessarily been plugged into the culture wars and the, you know, what we Christians think are the spiritual battles of our nation, a lot of people are saying, wait, wait just a minute. Uh, we don't fix America by burning it to the ground. And in my book, The Assault on America, you know, I, I'm a Christian. Obviously, job one, I want people to hear about Christ and have a relationship with Christ, but I'm also a citizen. And we believe the best way to serve the Lord and for people to have an opportunity to earn a living and experience their dreams is a free, safe, prosperous, stable, constitutional, moral America. And, and that really does hang in the balance. That's why um, in the book I say, and I believe I, I defend this persuasively, but I say this is the most consequential election in our lifetime and probably the most uh, tenuous, potentially dangerous moment in our nation's history since the American Revolution. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, boy, it, it sure seems like there's a lot of energy on both sides that uh, have a lot of vested interest in, in the direction of our country. And, and it's pretty intriguing opening chapter that you have related to that, Alex, when you talk about it being so consequential. And in your first chapter is titled, Has America Reached Its Expiration Date? And I, I think as you reference the, the Jewish Democrat from New York that you talked about, worried about the future of our country, I don't think she is alone. And, and how do you balance that as a student of history? of saying that nations do rise and fall, and, and you can just note that while still loving our country. How, how do we think about these things in terms of the future of America? If the worst does happen, we as believers, how, how do we begin to navigate that kind of situation? Uh, that's a great question. That, that is a really great question. Nations do rise and fall. You know, the, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, 
uh, 14, verse 34, that righteousness exalts a nation. In other words, lifts up a nation, blesses a people. But sin is a reproach, a debasement, a devaluing. And the Bible also says that um, the, the wicked or the unrighteous will be turned to the grave. Some translations will say the, the wicked shall be turned to hell, and all the nations that forget God really means the grave. Uh, you know, nations can go out of business. And it's funny, I was on the radio with Eric Metaxas, a best-selling author and, and a, a friend of many years, but Eric has written wonderfully about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and about Martin Luther and um, so many different things. And I, I mentioned in my interview with Eric Metaxas that in many ways, America of 2020 looks like Germany of, of 1929 through the early 30s. And uh, he said, I agree. He said, you know, he was at a party and he said that and somebody thought he was, you know, just not serious. But look, We've had the unraveling of the family now for about four decades, and we've had four to six decades of public education that was overwhelmingly secular, um, at best was, you know, teaching Darwinism and there is no objective moral truth, and at worst, in recent years, public education has just denigrated America and promoted um, you know, pluralism and relativism and America's bad and we need to become enamored with socialism. Uh, and so here we are where uh, the loss of our moral compass, the, the abolition of moral knowledge to try to legitimize things like abortion on demand and gay marriage and now transgenderism and the marginalizing of the nuclear family. Uh, we, we're to the point where family and morals and God and our own history, not to mention church being really dismissed as irrelevant, the, the, the fibers that hold the fabric of the country together have all been cut apart. And it, it's no, no accident that we're where we are, ripe for the, the takeover by any dominant force. In, in the case of this summer, you know, we're looking at uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is essentially Marxist, they say so on their website, and it, it's got a foothold when I, I believe in previous generations it wouldn't have had any traction, but there's a foothold now because so many of the things, God and family and church and good education and true history and a moral compass, it would have, in previous generations, quickly held those things at bay. Marxism and anarchy has a foothold right now because the, the props that would have warded against it have been systematically dismantled over the last four decades. Mm. Alex, as you make the, some of those observations about where we are today and, and even related to some degree to uh, Germany and its history, I know it's a relatively obscure reference, but the Weimar Republic of Germany it was what preceded the rise of Hitler and it very much was characterized by many of the things that you describe in terms of its uh, fall into immorality and, and, and just what, what provided the seedbed for Nazi Germany to, to rise. So I think it is an important analogy to make. And, and after that time, and we see the rise of Hitler, we do then see the persecution of the church. So let's take a short break. I know you talk about persecution in this book, and I would love for you to outline that for our listeners. We're chatting with Alex McFarland here on The Bill Arnold Show. I'm Peter Kapsner. Stay with us. More in a minute.
It is about 17 minutes past the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill Arnold today, and we're chatting with Alex McFarlane, regular contributor to the program here. And uh, Alex has released a new book called The Assault on America. It is skyrocketing up into the bestseller categories, uh, and it seems to certainly have tapped a nerve for a lot of people that are interested in this conversation. And Alex, you uh, talk a little bit about expecting persecution in this book, and, and clearly the United States is a bit of an outlier or an anomaly in terms of being in an environment with where the church has had the freedom to thrive in the way that it's thrived compared to maybe the church's experience globally. But historically speaking, the church does tend to experience a quite a bit of persecution. So why don't you kind of walk us through your thinking on this? Wow. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And uh, Peter, it's a great honor to be on with you. I, I appreciate Bill so much, but appreciate you and all the the great work you do, not only for the radio audience, but for the kingdom of God, brother. But, um, you know, it's been said that the blood of the martyrs it has been the seed of the church. And, you know, I think about China right now. China has been under intense persecution for, you know, uh, decades of Christians in China, that is. And um, I've heard from different missiologists different numbers, but in in many quarters of China, Christianity has been thriving. And I think about North Africa and Morocco, and even in some of the Islamic lands where the church has been intense, intensely persecuted, um, it's grown and thrived. And and I know in America, you know, we talk about persecution, and many of the Christians around the world. Uh, would probably happily trade places with us um, in parts of India. Uh, Hinduism has intensely persecuted Christianity in parts of India. But we're, we're seeing the persecution intensify here in America. Uh, let me just say, just this week, uh, John MacArthur, um, Grace Church in 20 miles north of, El of Los Angeles, the parking lot they've used for 45 years, has been taken the... Uh, county or city that they're in is claiming eminent domain because, and many think it's retribution, because John MacArthur and his church have been meeting and they haven't, you know, quarantined. Um, and then the, there was another California church just today I read in the news that's being fined $50,000. Why? Because the parishioners were singing during worship. Wow. Where, yeah, I, I mean, so... It's intensifying. I will say this. You know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Stand Strong in College, What You'll Hear Your Freshman Year Preparing for the Ways that College Will Challenge Your Faith. And um, <laughs> one one student that I interviewed from um, University of Arizona was talking about how for a freshman orientation class, part of what they had to do was go to a triple X bookstore and look at the, um, you know, really vile things that are in a triple X bookstore and they were supposed to write about it. And so he went to, now you would think freshman orientation would deal with, you know, where to get a meal ticket or how to get a parking sticker. But he told the, the teacher, he said, yeah, I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to a triple X bookstore and have to write about my impressions of it. And the teacher was like, why? And he said, well, because I'm a cri. And before he could say the word Christian, the teacher just tore into him mm. and said, look, you know, if you come here with monolithic puritanical views that are instilled in you by your parents, that's one thing, but, but I'm not going to let you leave here. Um, let me just say this. I interviewed two weeks ago a department head for a state university uh, in another state, um, and this person said the academic dean at this particular state university called the incoming freshman 
fresh meat. Mm. Why? Because they could deconstruct their worldview and then upload the school's worldview. Now, how does this relate to persecution? Because, look, believe me, folks, I assure you, if, in terms of American academia, unless, unless a person goes to a solidly Christian school, and there are good Christian schools out there, but at many a state university, as uh, you know, Ben Shapiro said, Ben Shapiro said that college at a state university is a four-year attack on America and God. And now these punitive you know, fines and, and zoning ordinances designed to silence the church and hamstring the church from meeting, these are just the incremental, gradual, you know, f- boiling the frog in the kettle slowly examples of how, look, the left wants the church gone. And, and I'm going to make a couple of wild predictions here, but look, um, a couple of things could happen. One, Christ could return, and uh, the Bible calls that the blessed hope. You know, the return of the, of the Lord, that would be great. Um, or maybe there'll be a great awakening, and moments of crisis very often do precipitate that. Maybe there'll be a great revival. The Spirit of God will move, and people will be converted to Jesus, and, and people's moral compass will be restored. That would be wonderful. If those things don't happen, and, and they may, but if they don't, Peter, I, I will predict that there'll be an intense, uh, an intensified effort to um, marginalize marriage and family. Because, mm. look, when it comes to things like homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, lawlessness, you know, pluralism, the, the social architects know. I've interviewed some of them. I've spoken off record with people that are part of teachers' unions. For the book, The Assault on America, we did interview some people from within the DNC that are profoundly concerned for where the Democrats want to take America. Now, here's my point. Um, The government will one day manufacture children. Uh, There will be kids birthed by government um, departments and raised as compliant little socialists to bypass that pesky mom and dad that impart values and religion into the hearts of young people. Look, unless we have a revival, I want to say this, folks, we're witnessing the tearing down of monuments, the erasure of our history, public educators that have said we should not teach history pre-1960. Yeah, because if you go much past, uh, you know, the, the boomer generation, you go back pre-World War II, and you're going to see that we overwhelmingly were a Christian nation. Peter, here's where I'm going with this. If we don't have a resurrection of God and country, we're going to see a push to abolish use of the word America. Now, now let me explain, and, and then I'll, I'll throw back to you. Yesterday, Elizabeth Warren, and, and look, she will have a cabinet position in the Biden presidency, if Biden wins. Yesterday, Elizabeth Warren said that racism is, quote, a public health crisis. And and that's not even a meaningful statement because, you know, an attitude or a viewpoint is not a physiological condition. So to call a worldview, and racism is wrong, we categorically, racism is wrong. 
But look, to call racism a public health crisis, I want to tell you two, two reasons they're doing that. And, um, you know, I, I watch what people say. Language matters. Okay, look, she used the term structural racism. Now, that's a new, new addition to the Marxist lexicon. All right, all summer long we've heard of systemic racism. The systems are bad. Police is bad. That's a system. So we've got to get rid of it. Okay, structural racism. Uh, if the structure is bad, then, then how would they propose to fix? Tear down the structure and build a new structure. All right, we've already seen with the COVID um, situation that the country has been put on lockdown. Why? Because it's a health crisis. Do you understand that if racism is indeed, as Elizabeth Warren says, a health crisis, well, then, my goodness, for the health, for the greater good, we have to call martial law and shut down the country. And, and Peter, I, like, I'm the last guy that would be talking about any of this because, you know, my uh, government and law is not my training. My training was in philosophy and psychology. But my point is this. Um, the freedom, even if you're not a Christian, you, let's say that Jesus and church or, you know, that's not a priority in your life. Well, fair enough. At least just for liberty and freedom and prosperity, we would want to save the country, not tear it down. Hmm. And I, I wrote this book, hopefully, to make people aware that this battle is real um, in any other milieu. You know, tearing down monuments, the erasure of history, got to rewrite the Constitution. We would call this an act of war because it really does threaten the very existence of the United States of America. Yeah, it's a lot of astute observations there, I think, Alex. And for people listening, if they think, gosh, that might just be a wee bit alarmist in certain spots, I did read some articles here in the last 24 hours about how the genetic editing of uh, embryos is starting to happen. And they don't feel like they have the technology yet to be able to execute it as well as they would like, but they're starting to put down the sort of the values and the ethics of, of how to go about genetically edi uh, editing our children and, and, and being able to do so outside of the womb. And, and as a person who's been in academia for the uh, last 16 years or so, I'm grateful to be a part of the Christian schools of which I'm a part, but I also have seen what Amen. you've described in, in, in other schools as well. Alex, we got to leave it right there. Uh, but just remind our listeners again about the book and, and where can they get it? Uh, I think it's a real important oh. text that, you, that you've written here. Thank you. Well, it's available at Barnes & Noble everywhere, all the Barnes & Noble, and on Amazon.com. And if you have a local Christian bookstore, please patronize your Christian bookstores. By Harrison House Publishers, it's called The Assault on America, How to Defend Our Nation Before It's Too Late. If you Google my name, like on one of the booksellers, just Assault on America by Alex McFarland, you'll find it. And I thank you for your interest. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, thanks for the time. Thanks for just, again, your observations that you make. It's so helpful for so many of us. Have a great rest of the afternoon and great Labor Day weekend. Uh, you too, my friend. Thank you. We'll take a short break here, and we'll come back for the second half of this first hour of the Bill Arnold Show. We'll be joined by Arlene Pelican, who is an author and uh, a person who does a lot of commentary on parenting and relationships with our kids. And Arlene are and I are going to talk a bit about what it means to be educating our kids in this COVID climate, distance learning, and, and how we can continue to move forward uh, in the uncertainty ahead.
It's about 28 minutes before the top of the hour. Welcome back to the Bill Arnold Show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today as Bill is on holiday through the Labor Day weekend and delighted to be joined at this time by author Arlene Pelican, who's done so much work for families and marriages and parenting and, and has a new book coming out as well. Good afternoon, Arlene. Great to be with you, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm curious what you're seeing these days. I know we've, uh, my wife and I both have been in the education system. We've been public educators. Uh, my wife, most recently, Hallie, has been uh, educating our kids at home over the last several years. And uh, and she said she's had more people coming to her in the last few weeks just saying, well, what are we supposed to do? Can we homeschool? How do we do the distance thing? What do we do? I, I think families are pretty confused about how to move forward in this situation. Absolutely. So you know what, for you homeschooling parents out there, we we need you so you can <laughs> see why people are, are reaching out to your wife. And, you know, it's I think that when you're accustomed, as I am, for your kids to go to school, you know, at 845 for one of my kids and 730 for my other two and come home late in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, this thing that happened in the spring that's still happening. <laughs> like our kids are still at home that it does make you search for answers. And and I think we're at the point where, you know, before it was, hey, let's just get through this. This is temporary. Let's just get through this. I'm sure we'll get back on track. Uh, you know, but now there's this feeling of, hey, we could be here for a while. We've really kind of have to figure out something workable now. Yeah, you know, it's it's exactly what we've been saying, and I know a lot of our friends have been saying the same thing. There was the sense of just what you said, which is, well, we'll weather the storm. We'll get back to normal. Yeah. I'm sure the fall is going to be sort of back to what we were. But at what point, Arlene, are we talking about we almost forget what life was like before the virus, and we do have to actually carve out a new way forward? Yeah, and I think as a parent, it's good to have that understanding of, hey, there's grace here. We're going to do the best that we can. But I like to have those words Uh, master the basics instead of like, hey, let's just lower the bar and forget the standards and let's just scrap it and start again next year, (laughs) you know, because if we can use this time, you know, and I know this is difficult, so, so kind of use this where you're at, but if you can use this time to say, okay, what can my child learn during this time that's actually going to help them, that will actually be beneficial to them? And I think for a lot of kids, it's that whole independent study of having to realize, hey, this is on me. Like my mom, my dad can't do everything for me. So whether I'm in third grade or I'm in 12th grade, like I have to figure this out. <laughs> like I got to figure out how to log on to my classes. And I think that's a really great skill for kids to learn how to own their own day and to understand this is where I'm supposed to be at this time and have the responsibility, the self-control to show up. And obviously, the, we as parents, depending on how, what our kids like, you might have one kid who can do that really easily. And then you'll have another kid where you're like, oh, look at that. You have three tabs open. <laughs> you like doing all sorts of things while you're supposed to be listening to your teacher. So to know your kids, but to just think of it as how can we master the basics, as my son, who's a junior this year in high school, told his freshman sister, just don't fail. You know, (laughs) just (laughs) the idea of how can we get to these basics of show up to class, give it your best effort. If you don't understand how to turn in your homework, make sure you clarify that with your teacher, turn in your homework on time. And then let's do this again tomorrow. But it, it's a tough go for everybody. Yeah, obviously the pandemic has been so disruptive and it's been so devastating for so many people in so many different ways. But in yeah. the midst of that, you know, I, I do hear stories of some silver linings with families and just some of the yeah. maybe the speed with which we live sometimes, the, the, the time spent together. What, what are you seeing in the work that you do in terms of some of the potential silver linings? 
Yeah, I have to admit, you know, I I have a a friend and I think she represents many people who said, don't tell anybody. But (laughs) I kind of don't mind working from home and having my husband home for lunch and having the kids around me. Like, I kind of like knowing that my daughter is in her bedroom doing school and my son is downstairs at the table doing school and I'm in my little nook doing my work. And I know I'm going to see my husband at lunch. Don't tell anybody, but I kind of like it, you know. So so there are, I think, some people who are benefiting from the extra time with kids. You know, you think about uh, the kids as they get older, that they're going to be going to college, graduating out of your home. And, and I know some who feel lucky, like, hey, I got them for a few for a few more months, whether it's a senior that they get to spend more time with or even a college student. I know that's a weird thing, too. But then, you know, they, they might be doing school from home. So there are some, if you can see it as, hey, we got a little bit of extra time with this person. I think that could make it a very sweet thing. But of course, wanting to and celebrating moving on as well, not trying to get trapped in, right. in, you know, in the certain phase, but as long as you're here and as long as you have to be here to enjoy it. And and I do think a silver lining is when, when we realize, wow, we don't have to drive here by three o'clock, here by five o'clock, there by 7 p.m. And then all of a sudden we were like, wow, why have we been running around like crazy, dropping our kids off at all these activities when, wow, this is much more gratifying to slow down. So I I think that could be a thing where you pare down and and you say, hey, we'll just do one sport a season instead of three sports a season. You know, that those kinds of things could be some lasting lessons that may help the family moving forward. Yeah, I've been amazed at how few miles we put in our car over these last six to seven months and just, you know, how delightful that is to just spend time in in different kinds of ways. So again, it has been devastating, but there are some upsides of that too. But on the flip side of it, I did see a headline that caught my attention. I I believe it was yesterday and and it was a difficult headline that said something to the effect of that divorces have been spiking during the time of this pandemic. And I'm just curious, I I guess on one level, it makes some degree of sense because anytime Mm -hmm. there's such a disruption in life, it does cause even stress that you didn't have before. Uh, yeah. do, do you have ideas, thoughts, tips, suggestions about how relationships and marriages can hang together and maybe even begin to thrive a bit more in the midst of this disruption? Absolutely. And and it is so true that because of the pandemic, problems that perhaps were underneath the surface, all of a sudden you have either more time to be with each other and these problems are surfacing, or you have tension because you've got a job, economics, whatever. So it's just, you know, exasperating these things. But I think that, again, as we were talking about mastering the basics with the kids, it's also going back to those basics in your marriage. Uh, You know, I think about the time, and this is my husband and I've been married for 21 years. And I mean, we just had this discussion at lunchtime today of of Mm -hmm. how we can prioritize the marriage when you have so much work to do and not feel like you're second, always second to the work. Right. And, and so this happens pandemic or not pandemic, but anyway, all that to say those basics of, Hey, maybe we need to just take a walk around the block and hold hands. And that's all we're doing. We're not going to talk to each other necessarily. We're not going to bring our grievances, but maybe that'll be a new ritual that after dinner, if your kids are old enough to leave at home, that you just walk around the block holding hands. Hmm. And of course, in the future, that will include, hey, we're going to give one, a compliment to each other as we take our walk. And then another time you might say, hey, you know what, if you have a concern, why don't you bring it up on this walk? But it's just the idea of creating space 
for you to communicate and for you to touch and to hold each other. Maybe it's sitting on the couch together after dinner's done for 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be this huge thing, but even if you just sat down, even for five minutes, you know, uninterrupted and you hold each other mm. and you hug each other like we used to. And, and, you know, and at first that might feel very foreign, like what in the world are we doing that for? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the kids, what, what, what are mom and dad doing? But even those simple practices of, hey, we're going to take these five minutes after dinner and we're going to cuddle up on the couch, even if we don't feel like it, even if we don't really like each other, we're still going to do it. I think those kinds of things are helpful. And then obviously, if you need more intervention to read books together, to go to a counselor together, to seek help, you know, I I like to I I say interview in quotes just because I'm an author and I write books about it. But I like to take people out who are uh, beyond me to coffee and ask them, how did you do that? You know, so with a, another mom, uh, let's say you are seeing in your marriage you're struggling, who around you has a good marriage? Who around you has a marriage that has lasted the test of time? Take this mom, take this person, uh, you know, uh, man out to, to you, you, the same gender that you are, out to coffee and ask them, how did you do that? Can you give me help? Can you give me tips? Because I think people can find the help if we seek it out. Mm. And Arlene, uh, another relationship that's been disrupted for a lot of people are is the relationship of grandparents with their grandkids, especially if they're close by or they can't travel if they yeah. maybe live out of state as, as easily and effectively as they used to. So what, what tips do you have maybe for grandparents in this time, especially if they fall into a high-risk category, to be able to stay connected with their grandkids? It's such a good question. And actually, we have a new book coming out in October called Grandparenting Screen Kids because screens can be kind of a curse and a blessing between grandparents and grandkids. So a positive thing, of course, would be, you know, doing a video call with your grandchild or just a voice call. Those are always positive things that you can do. There's no coronavirus that can get in between your phones. So that's <laughs> definitely that's definitely a thumbs up and something to do regularly. I know my co-author, Dr. Gary Chapman, in that Grandparenting Screen Kids book, he talked about that Sunday afternoon was always and is always his time to connect by phone with his grandkids. And so if you have a normal time that you can talk on the phone, even if it's for a short amount of time, five, ten minutes, but you do that on a regular basis. I think that's a beautiful way to connect, whether you live, you know, an ocean away or whether you're just around the corner, but you can't see each other because of the coronavirus. Um, you know, if you are geographically in the same place, which is my situation with my parents, but my parents are older and, and so they only see the kids outside and for short periods of time and they wear their mask and their face shield. And that definitely has been very different because they would normally spend a lot more time together. So what we've seen is just the dropping by, kind of exchanging food, you know, talking for just a short amount of time, sometimes a game of ping pong outside, you know, so it's different. But I think if there's something there, that's good. It's something for everyone to look forward to, even if it's a short interaction, if you're in the same city as those parents and grandparents. Mm-hmm. We're chatting with author and speaker uh, Arlene Pellicane, just to try to prepare for the upcoming fall season as we're getting back into the school year. I'm sure some of you already are back into the school year to some degree and in all the variables and uncertainty that go with it. And Arlene, you referenced a book that uh, just a second ago about screen kids. And when we come back from a break, I want to get into that a little bit more with you because I know a lot of parents have expressed some concern with uh, doing school remotely that not only are their kids on screens in an entertainment kind of way, but now they're having to be on their screen almost all day as part of school too. So what we can do related to that with our kids, again, it's Arlene Pelicane. We'll be back on the Bill Arnold Show with more in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Bill Arnold Show here on the 4th of September, anticipating the Labor Day weekend. I hope you all are looking forward to a good breakaway here as we get ready for sort of the fall and the upcoming winter season. And we're talking with Arlene Pelicane just about different tips about how we can maintain our relationships as we're in this uncertain environment. And producer Rebecca Maxwell, you you had a pretty interesting meme that was going through the Internet these days as we're anticipating school moving forward. And all about the memes. Indeed. The one that's going around with my friends is a picture of somebody just dramatically crying and the caption is, this is my child realizing there's no such thing as a school day or as a snow day as anymore. As a snow day anymore. In an era of Zoom, Arlene, right? There's I mean, never a time to have we're, a snow We're never going to have that snow day ever again. But, but Rebecca, too, you, you are still a little bit upset about the lack of justice you had as a homeschool kid growing up that you never actually had that official snow day. Right. We never got a day off. <laughs> so this feels fair and normal to me. But, you know, Arlene, you're in California. So yeah, things so are probably going to have for you. Yeah, <laughs> Bad. <laughs> That's great. Well, but that does get into the idea that our kids are going to be on Zoom quite a bit and they're going to be in live meetings on screens. And it's what we referenced before the break, that there really is a change in the way that our kids are interfacing with one another. And, and screens are not neutral. They do things to us physiologically yeah. and sociologically. And so I'm just sort of curious, tell us a little bit more about your book and, and maybe let's get into this about some tips about how we can help our kids stay healthy mentally, socially, emotionally, and spiritually in the midst of this. Absolutely. The book is coming out in October. It's called Screen Kids, and it's to help you navigate this green world and to teach your kids, you know, the the different skills they need in life that they don't learn on screens necessarily. And it's so true. You know, I have two high schoolers that are on between nine o'clock in the morning and two thirty, and then I have a sixth grader who starts at eight forty-five and she goes to twelve, and then in the afternoon it's kind of fun. Then she and two of her friends they like do homework together, you know, and it's on Zoom <laughs> and such. So it's kind of like the small group study, which has been nice because then it's like, oh, you're seeing your friends. That's good. I'm happy for you. So so the thing is, though, when you're on the computer so long, you get tired. Like your body is you're in the same sitting position for so long, your eyes, your wrists, all that stuff. So, you know, it's they I'm famous for coming downstairs when it's the break and saying, everybody stretch. You know, it's only <laughs> like a 10 minute break or whatever, but it's OK. Stand up, get out of your seat, go stretch, get a snack, get some water. Let's go outside. Someone check the mail for me. Like I'm making up things for them to do. So they'll go outside and come back inside just for that change of pace. So I think as much as you can think of how can I switch channels for my child? So in other words, here you are, you've been sitting static, you've been sitting at the screen. How can we get you out? You know, and you reference that we're in, in California. And so my husband has put up two hammocks in the backyard. So a lot of times I'll see the kids they are just sitting in the hammock and that's great. So just looking for ways, how can they physically move away from their spot of school and then disengage with screens and truly I think an easier way than saying, you know, here's what, you know, exactly from minute to minute what happens. It's more so thinking what are the non-screen activities we can plug into your day after school? Because after their their school session's over, then they're still doing homework, you know, and they're still doing homework and they're still looking at their screens. And so it's difficult to say at such and such a time, we're going to just you know, shut all this off. But instead, uh, what we have done is just the things that have to happen. For instance, you have to walk the dog. You have to practice the piano. You have to help me set the table. You know, just things in life that are not, they don't have anything to do with the screen. And before you go to bed, they need to get done. 
So I think that's a good way to look at it. And even the recommendation that physicians have always had of 60 minutes of activity for kids. So whether that's go outside on your bicycle, you know, we're going to do this indoor workout, we're going to get a weight set for you, you know, whatever the case is uh, that, and that's obviously popular because whenever I go look for weights, they're always gone in all the stores. (laughs) And so things like that. So make sure your kids are getting that one hour of physical activity. Um, Make sure they're getting nine to 11 hours of sleep. So if you know, oh man, they're watching TV till what time, you know, they're texting who at what time they're playing video games until what time. That's the time for us to step in. And this would be my book, Parents Rising. But this is the book, Parents Do Need to Rise at 1 o'clock in the morning, go into their kid's room and say, you need to go to sleep. You know, so for a lot of kids, they do need us as parents to step in. So make sure your kids are getting enough sleep, 60 minutes of physical activity, and then really no more than two hours of recreational screen time. And Mm. that, for a lot of kids, will be way too much because they're already on the screen so much. Hmm. For parents, if you've got multiple kids at home and they are doing sort of asynchronous instruction where it's not maybe just, you know, all of the same thing all throughout the day, are you as a parent, is it possible to set up a different kind of day or a different kind of routine for each kid? Would that be important or is it more important to sort of keep the kids all on the same kind of routine and rhythm throughout the day? You know, and that's going to be a personal taste. So if you find that, hey, this certain kid works really good in the evening and it's, they can do it whenever they want, so I'm going to have them do that. I think that's fine. Uh, for personally, I would think the the closer you can clump the kids together, probably the better so that they're all working at the same time. And then, you know, because it's very hard for one person to be working and the other person shooting hoops outside and they, I want to go join them. So uh, personally, my advice would be get them on the same page as much as possible. But obviously, if there are tweaks that would work better for your family, go for it. And for grandparents, you referenced that beforehand in terms of their accessibility with the kids. Uh, in terms of that screen time with them, do you, do you sort of count that throughout the day as an interactive relational time with family when you're thinking about how often they're on screens? Or does that fall into a sort of a different category than recreational yeah. screen time or maybe academic screen time? That's a great question because it is true that that screen time, it is not equal So for someone who is on YouTube and they're just watching silly videos to make them laugh, Versus someone on YouTube who is learning, let's say, how to, um, my one daughter is interested in horses, so she wants to, and she actually assists with someone, and I told her, watch a video about the horse parts, because that's what your, <laughs> what, what your instructor had asked you about. So it is different. I mean, it's, it's YouTube for both, but one is kind of for pleasure and one is for learning. And so I like to talk about it as a digital vegetable or a digital candy. And so you only want, need a little bit of candy every day. But the vegetables, you kind of almost can't outdo those. So in that way, that falls apart a little bit. Because if you do digital vegetables all day long, you know, that's not going to work so well either. However, I do think that conversation with grandma is a digital vegetable, that it is something that you can do. And it's almost like you can't do that in excess. If you're talking to your grandmother on the phone and you're making this connection, I, I feel like you can't get too much of that. And part of how you can tell about that digital vegetable is kids usually don't keep asking you, can I call grandma again? Can I call grandma again? Can I call grandma again? You know, like after you've talked to her, can I call her again? Can I call her tomorrow morning? You know, but they will ask you, you know, can I play this game? Can I watch this show? And so that's obviously something that can also tip you off on, is this a vegetable or a candy? (laughs) 
Yeah, I certainly I've heard my kids yell from the basement. Uh, uh, I don't know how many times. Hey, Dad, can we finish up? Hey, Dad, can we finish up? You know, when the timer's <laughs> been set and, you know, some some end battle is happening uh, online. Right. And so it is it is that uh, constant thing. Well, another uh, area that's been disrupted, not just in family in school, is the church experience as well. And I had a chance to speak in a church this past weekend and the church would hold maybe typically about 800 people on a weekend, but maybe 80 people were there and, and in masks. And it's a different environment. So how do we, yeah. in this situation where I know a lot of people aren't able or don't go into the same physical space in the church building, and how do we maintain those kind of spiritual connections and relationships with those close to us? And, and how do we even do church maybe in, in this kind of situation? Yeah. I think that if you're able to go to church, you know, that's something so beautiful. So we in California, where I am, we're not going to church for a long time. And then in the summertime, we started an outdoor service. And so that would just be, you know, like you're saying, a fraction of who would normally be there, but outside. And it was so good. And I couldn't believe it, like to be among other people and hear the pastor and be able to see his body in front of me and hear the music. It was really like so moving and helpful and spiritual for me. So in that sense, I feel like whenever you can go, whenever you feel comfortable enough or the environment is such that you can do it, you know, not to forsake that assembling together, that it is such a good experience. Now, obviously there are people that, and and to be honest with you, you can also, you have a lot of control over that. Like if you are walking into a building that's only 20% full, let's say, you have control over where you're going to sit and you can sneak out before it ends if you feel (laughs) that strongly, you know? So I just encourage you, you can tailor the experience to work for you. That's totally possible. Um, But obviously, if you feel like that is too much of a health risk for you, how beautiful that you can experience all these services online, how amazing that you could visit churches all over the world, you know, by attending their online services. So you may think of it in that way that, okay, I might be isolated from my local church body, but hey, why don't I like go to all these different places throughout the week and and make this more of a spiritual experience for me. And then I even encourage, even if maybe you felt comfortable with one or two other families and you did it outside and watched a service outside or something, there is something about being with someone else while you are watching a service, while you are being there. Mm. So if you can create that, I think that is a good thing. I know a small group that they would just meet in their home, just a few families, and they could keep their distance, and they just put it on their flat screen TV, and they had church together. And some people I know have also done that outside. And so things like that, to be creative in that. And even if it is only your family members, then then I would say make it a commitment to do it at the same time every week. So if it's just your family doing it, and of course you could do it any time after it's posted, but if you say, hey, our church service is Sunday at 930 and everybody attends, that's a lot better than just wondering when are we going to watch church and then people kind of watching on their own. It's If you're going to be at home, do it with whoever's living in your home and kind of make yourself a church service and be an usher and let the other person in <laughs> welcoming in your living room. Yeah, well, it sort of is like school in that, you know, way you just recognize that it's not going to be quite the same, but that doesn't mean it can't be a positive and rich and, and, and very fulfilling experience to, to gather like that. I love the tip of the idea that make sure 
that you're doing this with other people as well. I know that we've been doing some of that with families and, and even sharing a socially distant appropriate meal and, and even communing together. Uh-huh. And it's been pretty powerful. But I even see, Arlene, too, we just have a couple minutes left here, but that some people are doing some, uh, Zoom small groups. And, I, and I'm sure there's some people that would just hearing this right now that would be new to them that you could meet over Zoom. And that's been a pretty effective tool from a small group standpoint as well. Yes. So there are definitely things that you can use. You know, I'm in a prayer group, momsinprayer.org, and it's basically the idea of two praying moms for each school. So now that school is starting, we're going to start praying on Zoom again. You know, we used to do it around the, the table, but for now we'll do it on Zoom. So there are things that would normally happen in your life that for now you'll say, okay, we'll do this virtually. But I do think the virtual is better than not doing it at all. Mm. Well, Arlene, thanks for taking all of the time and just the many tips. I know, again, in the midst of the disruption of our lives, nobody really had this on our calendar, did we, about six months ago, that we, we'd be yeah. living this kind of way of life. But just thinking about some of the positives in it and, and ways we can move forward, really appreciate your time and your tips and your insight and your wisdom. Hope you have a great Labor Day weekend moving forward. Thanks so much, Peter. You too, you and your family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that'll do it for this first hour of the Bill Arnold Show. As Arlene was talking, I was thinking about that passage in Hebrews 10.24 that says, let us uh, think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together and, uh, and consider how we can continue to spur each other on in love and good deeds all the more as we see that day approaching. And so even though our, our communities have been disrupted in the ways that we have been used to gathering together, that doesn't mean we can't still gather together and continue to follow Jesus together in those ways. And it's hour two coming up in just a minute. Bill Arnold will be back with some fresh content that he taped before he left for his holiday. And up first will be Pastor Jeff Dodge. And they have a great conversation, a Bible study on the book of Titus that will continue. In the second half of next hour, we'll be joined by Greg Heddington. And he has a book called, uh, or a ministry with, that's Ransomed and Redeemed. And so you're not going to want to miss these conversations moving forward. Peter Kapsner signing out for Bill Arnold. Had a great time with you this week. I do hope you have a great Labor Day weekend moving forward. And remember to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.